0: Thank yeah. you.
1: many times on this show, how we wish it were uh, more archy and less uh, straight, episodic as it is. However, in this episode, we not only get a singular villain that we have met before, but we also hear the consequences of what happened on the previ- previous episode and then the bearing that they had on this one. And in one surprise that I will say for the end, uh, we'll hear that this wasn't supposed to be the last time either. We'll get to that. But first, welcome to the Brother's Trek About. My name is Matt. Thanks for joining us. And as always, is my brother Ken say hello. Ken.
0: Hailing frequencies are open.
1: There we go. Well, wow. lots to talk about in this episode. This episode is IMUD. It uh, aired episode eight of season two, which is amazing. Ah, sorry. <sighs> considering how long it actually took uh, for them to get there in its uh, viewership in the, all uh, right, in its, uh, uh, anyways, yeah, this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> uh, considering where, where it is in the uh, making of this season. But uh, also I should say that uh, if I've done my math right, this episode should air right before the Institute of Discovery comes out. Which means that uh, if there is more mud in season two of Discovery, then uh, I, obviously we're not going to talk about it in this episode, but that just means to stay tuned because there's going to be plenty of mud, perhaps, on uh, season two of Discovery coming up. If nothing else, we know he's got one of the short treks and uh, we'll at least talk about that at some point. So that's fun. So uh, the idea of doing another mud story was uh, pretty quick right out of the gate, as uh, the first mud episode aired. Obviously, it was very well received, and lots of people really liked it. But the initial idea of the robots and uh, all of that was very early on in the uh, making of Star Trek. Uh, Roddenberry uh, had this short story that Isaac Asimov had written called "Reason." And so the original name of this episode was Reason. Roddenberry's story told how the USS Yorktown encounters a planet of the Isaac Four group, and uh, obviously named after Isaac Asimov, where all intelligent organic life had perished, leaving a perfectly functioning robot society. Roddenberry's robots, like Asimov, acquired the ability to think, and to therefore they could reason, and thereby reason they could and should make all the decisions for themselves.
0: So this is not unlike the early episode, or season one, where the robots had survived. They didn't even remember the old ones. And then uh, Nurse Chapel's old boyfriend right. had like discovered them and replaced himself with a robot and planned to replace everybody with robots.
1: That's right. Had a robot lover and everything.
0: Ancient robot societies.
1: So in 1966, then Roddenberry brainstorming with Gene Kuhn decides they're going to, uh, decides they're like, hey, what if we do if we bring in Harry Mudd and uh, bring him to this mechanical society? So uh, the two genes settled on the title of I Mudd, which obviously is much like I Robot, right? Also by uh, Isaac Isimov. And uh, also I Claudius, you know, where he's uh, the reluctant emperor who could not escape his role. So you got those dual- dualities going on there. Scheduling the writing and the production of this was uh, pretty tricky because Stephen Kandel, who had created the character of Mud and who they wanted to bring back to write this next episode, had already gone on to ABC's Iron Horse and had co-created this with a Star Trek veteran director, James Gladstone. And uh, the guy who played uh, Mud in season one, Roger Carmel, was also uh, just been cast in this NBA situation a comedy uh, produced by Desi Arnez called The Mother's-In-Law. So, uh, they, of course, they had to get both their availability lined up, that one would be able to write and the other would be able to star in it. So uh, they figured that the sooner that they could get this through the pipeline, the better. So Candel turns in his outline. It uh, doesn't resemble iMud as we know it. In this version, there's this strange mix of uh, VIP passengers who are all traveling aboard the Enterprise. One was this character named Idris Bane, who was uh, so taken with her own looks that she was tempted to trade her mortal flesh and body for that of an android. We hear that story. There was a uh, brother Mercy, a depraved preacher, and uh, several robots, all identical in appearance, all by the name of Norman, which obviously appears in this episode as well. So- so meanwhile, the Enterprise then journeys to the robot's place of origin where Kirk is ordered to investigate, and this would bring about the unexpected reunion of Harry Mudd, the mastermind behind all the mechanical scheming. The problem is, is that they didn't introduce Harry Mudd until about 30 minutes into this episode, and this would plague several uh, drafts here on out. Roddenberry was thrilled to receive the story, only uh, the outline Basically, three days after assigning it and was eager to get into the script writing process, he sent a letter to Candell telling him, delighted to get this outline last Friday and would li- like you to get onto the first draft immediately. Despite being delighted, he included three pages of notes telling Candell, as captain of the starship assigned to patrol the entire sector of our galaxy, Kirk is a uh, hornblower. Of the space age, the enormous problems of his mind involving the Earth Federation and its many colonies. Basically, the idea that Kirk isn't just worried about his crew, but he's worried about what this means for the entire galaxy that the uh, Federation is a part of. So, uh, later in the story, then, as crew members are duplicated into robots, we get two Kirks of this, Roddenberry uh, wrote later. We've done duplicates of Kirk twice during the first season and have agreed with NBC that we will hold back on this for a while. However, we have never done a duplication of Spock. Does this offer you any ideas, he says? So that would have been an interesting idea to have a uh, Spock robot going up against, you know, actual real Spock. And what might have been fun about that, too, is to take it a step further and imagine, like, you know, him having to, like, purposely bring in his human side to, like, defeat, you know, robot robot Spock, but it was not meant to be. Also problematic was that uh, Harry Mudd was overshadowed by these other characters like Idris Vane, Brother Mercy, and the Normans. With these problems, uh, Roddenberry felt that he had maybe jumped the gun telling Gandel to begin writing the script, and furthermore, NBC had yet to approve the outline. Gene Kuhn even goes on vacation without having read it. So they get the script out, and, uh, Gandell says of it, uh, it was guaranteed the- so Gandell talks about, uh, working with Roddenberry on the script. He says, uh, they were talking about the brother mercy character. He says it was guaranteed to offend almost anyone. I talked to Gene and we had a lot of fun with it. He loved the idea, but then he also said, we are going to have a nightmare of an idea or we are going to have a nightmare with the network about this. And I said, but that's the whole fun of it. Three days later, Robert Justman voices his concern. And uh, as does Stan Robertson, who, of course, says they wanted to take the Brother Mercy out of the story. We both know it is difficult to portray a character on television who borders on being a religious fanatic without offending a great mass of our audience or so emasculating the character that you did totally destroy him as a believable human being. So that's interesting because now here we are in the 60s talking about, uh, you know, religious fanatics of the Christian faith. And yet nowadays we're hearing like, I don't know if we should be showing, you know, uh, Islamic fanatics uh, in any way on television as well, too, so things change and yet they remain the same. Robertson also agreed with Justiman by saying, uh, in this outline, as written, it's a little too complex and should be simplified. In its most elementary form, this should simply be a story about our heroes versus mud. The other characters should merely, merely be the purpose of acting as tools in this, in this struggle. He also goes on to say, We cannot assume that all the viewers who will be watching this forthcoming episode will have seen the previous episode. Therefore, it would seem that early in our story, as soon as possible, we would want to marry that which was the past with what is happening in the present with the future and all the colorfulness of mud that is concerned. Kuhn finally reads this draft, and uh, as well as some story notes from Roddenberry and notes from Justman and notes from Stan Robertson. He advises Kandel to stop writing the script he is working on, revise the outline, and uh, do that, please, for no additional pay, as always. Having now read this newest version of the script, Gene Roddenberry says, uh, Many of my concerns in this draft revolve around Steve's apparent unfamiliarity with our format. I would feel much more secure when he goes into his next draft that he should reread the star Trek guide. Perhaps it would have accepted our invica- invitation to come in and see a couple of episodes. He's very busy with our, his own show over the past year. And I suspect that he has no more star Trek episodes than you and I have of any other show also going on around town. He says, I don't know if I can put my finger on exactly what bothers me, but the sum of it still seems to come off a bit Buck Roger-ish. <laughs> The speeches written for the characters seem to indicate that these characters know that they are in a science fiction piece and are playing the wonder of it all rather than being real people in a real situation. Gene Kuhn then also adds to this by saying, it comes to my attention that our cigarette sponsors may possibly take great exception to Harry Mudd coming up with two cigars in the middle of the episode. In addition to which, we firmly hope, believe, and pray I say this as I light up another cigarette that in 300 years from now, this filthy, dirty, delightful habit of smoking will be a thing of the distant historic past." Which is also sad because uh, Jean Coon died at the age of 49 from lung cancer. So that's sad. Fontana, like Justman, wanted to lose the character of Idris Vane and suggested utilizing one of our regular women to sell the points that a human might be tempted to trade their body uh, that ages for a body that does not. Here we go again, D.C. Fontana, always looking out for the regulars on the show.
0: So, one of the things that this race is so interesting, right? Okay. And you see this as you kind of wander through other kinds of science fiction, right? Right. You tend to come up with three ideological camps. One is straight humanism, right, that... The human is good, we celebrate the human, and that's where Star Trek, you know, in its long history firmly sits, right? Another one is what we might call the the cybernetic path in which humans get, you know, mechanical computer, um, everything from bionic to, um, you know, chips in their brain, kind of augmentation. The Borg in Star Trek would be the ultimate villain in that sense. But there's other science fiction properties where that's normal, that's good. You know, you plug in, you download how to fly a helicopter or whatever you need. Mm-hmm. And the third is that you kind of go aeolian, right? That you, you change your DNA, you become mutants. You know, obviously, at the all the way up to 11, in this would be like the Avengers um or X-Men franchises. But you have you know straight science fiction that also does this, in which you're you're messing with your genes. And Star Trek has this as a kind of villainous dark past. In the eugenics wars, we see some of it in Enterprise when we actually get to meet Dr. Sung, who is doing some eugenics. Um so you have these kind of three camps, right? So when you you raise these kinds of questions about robots and stuff like that you know we're we're developing that lore and Mm -hmm. our our cast they're always going to say no the human must be preserved and you know we we can't adopt robot bodies we can't uh you know give up what makes us human right i mean the shatner speech writes
1: itself right (laughs) yes So uh, it was also Robert Jessman's idea to come up with the uh, female androids being played by identical twins. Uh, he thought that that was a really cool idea. That way it could prove that there were more robots than just, uh, just the one that happened to be on screen at the time.
0: For expensive
1: camera tricks. Exactly, which of course we will get into. Imud had begun with Roddenberry, and now uh, Roddenberry wanted to uh, try finishing it, especially since Robert Justman had pointed out all the no- naughty possibilities of having uh, female androids. His polish with the uh, first yellow cover was dated on July 21st. Among Roddenberry's changes, one humorous moment not included in the yet-to-come shooting script, where an examination reveals Norman to be a machine, and Scotty expresses an urge to uh, take him apart, and then quickly adds, uh, oh, nothing personal. <laughs> the first two acts were fun, but the problem remained that Harry Mudd still did not appear until halfway through the story on page 32. Gene Kuhn was busy rewriting many other scripts. D.C. Font- Fontana, as well, was also doing other scripts. Uh, after Roddenberry turned in his, his rewrite, he left the office to work on an assignment preparing a teleplay for a Robin Hood TV movie that uh, would never be made. Kuhn then thought of David Gerald who uh, goes on to become a very important member of this uh, behind-the-scenes crew. Gerald was just off the, uh, his first writing assignment, The Trouble Tribbles, so we'll find out more about him next week. Uh, but he had made an impression on Kuhn. He had also uh, saved Star Trek money because Gerald uh, wasn't a member of the Writers Guild, so he only had to be paid $3,000 as opposed to the normal $4,500. So Gerald says, uh, Gene calls me into his office. And hands me the script and says, what we want to do is get down to the planet in the first act. Not at the end of the 30 minutes like it's at, but like at the end of 15. Everyone knew that the story didn't kick in until Kirk and company were reunited with Harry Mudd. So uh, I said, uh, these androids have already demonstrated in the teaser that they're much stronger than human beings. So they can just grab the crew and beam them down. You don't actually have to show it. You can just have uh, somebody come in and you know and tell them about it. And this look comes over Gene Kuhn's face. You just solved it in one line of di- dialogue, what we have been arguing for for two weeks in this office. I want you to do the rewrite of this script, he says. Have the whole crew down on the planet as fast as possible, and then uh, we want to do all of this illogical stuff, which, of course, is the uh, the crux of the episode and uh, all of the comedy.
0: So this is the logic bomb, right, which we're right. famous for. How do you defeat mm-hmm. the supercomputer? You confuse it and... And act weird. I was right. telling you before we started the episode about that guy and uh, his demonetization problem. Yes. And so he would write to YouTube and he would get these like questions back that seemed to him to be like goofy. He's like, why have you demonetized my whole channel? Oh, I'm sorry about that. Tell me what URL you're concerned about. No, the whole channel. I'm sorry about that. Let me, you know... And so he decides to test whether they're a a human, he said. He writes, Given the chunk he is available, why would anyone ever get creamy peanut butter? And the thing replies, LOL, I get your pun. But back to your problem, (laughs) could you please, you know, tell me what URL you're concerned about? (laughs) At which point the guy realizes, this is a (laughs) bot!
1: Yes, exactly.
0: But a bot designed to like work its way around humor problems and, and logic bombs, right? Right. So you can imagine Kirk, you know, doing weird stuff to them and them going, "Lol, I get the pun." <laughs> and they're just wandering <laughs> off, and you're like, they just like recognized Tuber and disregarded it. But they don't, right? They the logic bomb works. This has the benefit of being the longest the most contrived this isn't like you know two or three minutes in which he's like but you're imperfect and your creator was imperfect and your mission is imperfect and you didn't realize that i'm imperfect therefore you're totally imperfect you've got to reconsider your mission Eh, and boom instead it's like half an hour of you know dancing and falling over and saying bizarre stuff <laughs>
1: totally locking up everybody's uh, yeah. or all the other computers
0: right exactly rivals perhaps only by the episode uh with hugh the recovered borg in which they think about planting some super complicated geometrical problem that's unsolvable used brain before they sent him back to the board and instead realized that what they did is they taught him about individualism and that was a worse computer virus than the geometry problem
1: Gerald was also very happy because uh, Mark Daniels who uh, of course one of our two uh, big directors so far this season uh, really sat down and took some time with him Uh, he goes I mean this guy invented the three camera sitcom he did all of the Lucys Mark Daniels uh, it was a privilege to be in the same room with him, he says. The joke is, I didn't know who Mark Daniels was the whole time I was working on Star Trek, except that he was an old-time director with a lot of credentials, and everybody respected and loved him, and he was a great guy. And maybe a year or two after Trek, I'm watching an old I Love Lucy episode, and uh, his credit comes on, directed by Mark Daniels. And I'm like, oh my god, I am so stupid. Because <laughs> <clears throat> of course he'd be working with Desi Lee, right? So uh, Kuhn then, pleased by uh, Gerald's rewrite, designates it as the final draft, then hands over the script to DC Font- Fontana for a good cleaning. Her rewrite takes in uh, all of Candle's writings, Roddenberry's writing, and Gerald's writing, and blends them into something that is uh, not only cohesive, but then feels like Trek. Uh, Kuhn then contributed, contributes a couple of page revisions as well, and uh, boom, that makes five writers who had their fingers in the stew on this movie, or on this uh, episode. And filming would begin six days later already. So uh, Jody Agosta, uh, our uh, casting director, is uh, now trying uh, to find twins, right? He's looking everywhere. He's, at one point, he's like, I called SAG, and they were of no help. So one day, I just happened to be driving down Hollywood Boulevard, and there were a couple of twins there walking along. And they were good-looking, sexy-looking, as I recall, even a little <clears throat> um, on the experienced side, if you know what I mean. So I pulled my car over and I said, uh, "Hey, excuse me. Do you want to be on TV?" Which I know must have sounded like a line. Made worse, of course, because I didn't have any business cards to give them. So I just wrote down this number and says, uh, "Hey, if you want to be on TV, just call this number." So uh, luckily they called. I brought them in and they just read so terribly. They had no experience at all. And Bob Justman objected to me hiring them, and I said, "But, but Bob, they're pretty. They're twins." Uh, so he just stopped suggesting. They were fine, however they didn't say one word throughout the entire episode. So they were one of the other uh, pair of twins that were in the background in this episode. All the dialogue was given to just the Alice series, who were played by somebody really named Alice. And Ray, those are their two names, Alice and Ray, except this one's spelled R-H-A-E, so that's interesting. And their last name is Andrees, probably? After the first hit. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Alice and Ray. After the first 10 minutes of the episode, uh, there's barely a shot where one of the two of them are not seen and or heard. Alice is given the screen credit as playing Alice 1 through 250 with her sister Ray playing Alice 251 through 500. (laughs) But production records indicate that when on camera together, Elise was always signed the lower number and Ray the higher, just so that they could tell which one was which. So I thought that was pretty cool. So uh, the Andree sisters, uh, just before appearing in uh, on this episode, appeared in ads for Gun, which was a film based on the Peter Gunn TV series. They were not actually in the movie, but they were uh, just they just used them for the ad campaign. After this, they appeared in uh, 1968 episode of Batman, a 1969 episode of Bonanza, and a 1970 exploitation film called Hell's Bloody Devils. Hello. They were also singers. As What's that? Bat,
0: as Batman alumni, they're there with you know Carmel, who's also a a Batman alum.
1: hmm
0: He played a, a a guy whose whose evil scheme was to counterfeit stamps.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a guy.
0: Yeah, he was villainous. <laughs>
1: So the consensus was that IMOD was going to use uh, the trick photography to make it look like they had uh, not only just the two, but four, and maybe even six other robots. So uh, to avoid uh, expensive match shots, they did that same uh, split screen effect that they did when uh, Evil Kirk was on the thing. You remember the scene where Kirk's holding his hand, and they so what they do is they they black out one side of the camera, they record the one side, then they black out that side and film the other side, so it looked like. There were uh, six of the same people being all filmed at the same time. <clears throat> now with computers, obviously, we could do it on my laptop. You know that's uh, pretty simple. But
0: yeah, with with computers, it's like you could you can have like a, a wall of mats, all sitting there talking to each other, nodding in agreement. Yes, oh so good, good point, Matt. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Yes, uh huh, Matt. Good point. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Matt. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, that's all I got in the behind-the-scenes stuff, so you know what I like to say. Let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. start aboard the Enterprise. Bones and Spock are uh, walking down together. A crewman walks by and acknowledges both McCoy and Spock. McCoy stops. He says, there's something odd about him, but Spock assumes that it's probably just a hasty judgment. After all, Norman has only been aboard for 72 hours. Spock asks for specifics, but McCoy's answer is pretty basic. Well, he doesn't smile much. Uh, He doesn't talk about anything other than work, and he doesn't talk about his background. I don't know about you, Ken, but uh, to me, this sounds like they're describing you. So (laughs) doesn't smile, talks about work all the time. Yeah, that's about right. It's my brother. I'm
0: all about business, except that I'm at the track.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: Actually, that that was uh, the other way around, right? Krusty the Clown was, yeah, 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 yeah," except that I'm at the track. Then I'm all business kid.
1: (laughs) Yep, exactly.
0: (laughs) I like to inverse that.
1: Spock scoffs at McCoy. They start, and he starts off, but McCoy stops him saying, no, no, I, I just mean for someone who is uh, not a Vulcan, you know, you and your ears. To which Spock's reply is, I find your argument full of holes and gaping defects, which is great. McCoy then goes on to add that, that you know, in, right. well, McCoy is true. He does prove to be uh, proven right. Correct. McCoy goes on to add that uh, intuition has a lot to do with it. Plus, he's evaded two appointments with the doctor for a physical without reason. Now, see, here's where I was like, now, shouldn't have Spock from this point see this as a red flag, right? I mean, he's usually in charge of the crew and specifically Kirk getting into their, uh to, to get their, their physicals done. He's number one, right? So, you know, he's like, it's his job. But instead, Spock says, uh, maybe he's afraid of your beads and
0: rattles.
1: (laughs) You can already see here that uh, uh, Nimoy's having a lot of fun with this episode. I think that you see it many times in this one where he's just having a ball. Also, I was thinking about this intuition thing, that if you were rolling up McCoy as a character, right, that you'd have to give him, uh, what, extra points in wisdom, probably, for intuition, Charisma, maybe. I don't know where intuition falls down, but wherever that skill is, it'd have to be high. Yeah. Then make me think of. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Wisdom.
0: And then he might also so like if you were building him and say like, uh, three point five, you know D and D. You think about the skills like perception and you know judging people's character and figuring you know s- sussing people out, right? If you got who's you know, and you might take a special either background um, traits or feats and skill focus to boost those numbers so that you could size people up from the get-go.
1: Right. I was also thinking that if we were to roll him up as a character just straight across the board, like, so he's a doctor, right? So he'd have to have high intelligence as well. Right. And we know the women love him, so he's got uh, high charisma, and uh, some subset in there would be the, the Southern Charm or whatever, right? You'd have to mark that. He's I mean, uh, obviously
0: a cleric. I mean, he's totally built to be a cleric.
1: Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Obviously, he's low on strength. You know, I mean, he's been in a couple of fights, but he's not the guy who, you know, you're going to send forward to uh, take out. He's not your tank, certainly.
0: He's not a battle cleric. <laughs> he's
1: a Right. He's a yeah, exactly. He's the healer. and that'll, But you'd have to give him a, a pretty strong constitution as well you know, because of all the times he survived uh, ailments or getting old as long as he did. Definitely. Well, I thought about that. That was fun. Anyway, we see uh, Norman walk into a restricted area and uh, pretty handily knocks out this guy who also must have had a low constitution. Norman then goes, uh, goes and he starts turning a bunch of knobs and switches. And then we see this overload switch light up. Oh no, this isn't good. Cut to the bridge, Sulu sees that uh, a course change has been made. Kirk calls down to auxiliary control. There's no answer. He sends a security team down there. When they arrive, two of them take the injured man out of sickbay, while the third one sits behind auxiliary. I thought that was going to be trouble for a minute, leaving one guy by himself, but turns out that was okay. Uh, The controls have been jammed. We find out they can't do anything to change it. Spock arrives on the bridge. Now, this is funny because the only thing Kirk says to him when he walks onto the bridge is, uh, we seem to be uh, taking an unscheduled ride. And Spock's only response is, interesting. Like, uh, doesn't he need to be filled in a little bit more? Like, hey, somebody took over auxiliary control. We think that there's somebody who could be uh, some terrorist running around or something. I mean, I think he needs a little more information here. But, uh, oh, well, maybe not. So Kirk calls down to the uh, emergency manual monitor. I don't know. What, what is that? What's their job? I don't know what they do down in emergency manual monitoring.
0: They work for the <laughs> records officer.
1: <laughs> Apparently. It sounds just as useful. Uh, anyway, we see Nor- A full commander has to be in charge of that. <laughs> it's very important to have these commanders roll positions. <laughs> So uh, anyway, uh, we see Norman's down there as well. One guy knocked out on the floor and he makes this daring escape down a ladder. He's really good. Anyway, but then he walks into engineering. Scott tries to stop him, but immediately Norman pushes him out of the way and punches this other guy. Scott tries to make it to the panel to call for security, but Norman shoves him again. And then the other engineering guy attacks. Kirk calls down again. He doesn't get an answer. Norman then uh, takes out the final guy who tries to leap off of the top, but is just sort of laid down on the ground. It wasn't a very good attack from the top. Uh, But then Scott makes it to the comm, and he says, uh, he tells Kirk that, he's like, "Uh, he's here, he's here, is all that he says. But for some reason, pain or something stops him from getting anything else out. And Norman makes another daring escape, but this time up a ladder. Kirk then sends security to engineering. Sulu tells him that we start accelerating at a higher rate. Warp five, warp six, warp seven. Kirk then heads down to engineering, but has stopped immediately at the turbo lift. Norman has walked onto the bridge. Norman talking somewhat robotically, strangely enough, says that uh, any attempt to take over the ship will cause its destruction, Spock confirms. So here's just a little filmmaking nugget here that I noticed that when uh, we get this shot of Spock at his uh, desk or at his little station there, it's a shot that we've never seen very, we don't usually see because we see Scott sitting there or Spock, I mean, sitting down and we can see very far above him, but then he gets up and he takes like six steps forward and he walks into this perfect close-up of himself. So that's why we, uh, that's why they did it. So we get this perfect shot where he walks into a a close-up. But uh, I just noticed that and was like, ah, okay. Anyway, Spock confirms. And uh, Kirk now asks who uh, Norman is. He says, we are no threat to you humans or humanoids, he says, looking at Spock. We mean you no harm, but we do need your ship. Need my ship? Who or what are we? Asks Kirk. So he lifts his shirt and reveals he's a robot, or an android, I guess. They call them all androids later. Anyway, so uh, we see here, uh, as he lifts his shirt, it's his skin, and then he opens up his skin, and there's uh, gadgetry going on underneath. Now, you can see in this one, this is really a a, a remastered shot, obviously. So if you uh, then, like I said, go to Trekkie Channel on, YouTube and you can look up the comparisons between the two, one thing that they did do really well in the remastered is uh, make the skin look real. Whereas before you could tell that it's like a panel on a fake body of some kind, you know? Uh, on this one, uh, they, they smoothed it and looked good. But if you actually look at what they did for the insides in the original episode, it's actually not half bad, right? Because it's uh, they put like just like a little circuit panel on there and it lit up and did all sorts of cool things. It's actually not too bad. I think that the remastered one looks a little bit too funky, maybe. Although it is supposed to be from a race of people that are, you know, better off than we are, who have more knowledge than we do. So perhaps that's why they made it look that way. Which also made me think about uh, what we know of the... You know, when we see them uh, under a panel working on something and it's all, you know, again, a circuit board of some kind or, you know, they're using tubes and whatnot. It's part of what I, as a kid, always thought made it work. Not because like, hey, I didn't know what circuit boards were and all of that kind of stuff, but it made the show feel like a lot more like low technology. Like it's very early in the, in the flight time of the enterprise, you know, that is like, had the show been set in say Discovery's time or enterprises time, like this kind of circuitry and gadgetry would fit. Whereas everything that's kind of come after that. I mean, I think that next generation fits its time period, you know, being whatever it's supposed to be 75 years after the original series or whatever. That's right. Yeah. I Isolinear chips and all that stuff. It feels like a lot more, not only modern, but it also feels like it's been a, a there've been so many, you know, technological leaps that have happened in the 75 years, you know, between the two uh, shows. But it's also then, you know, now you look at way, the way Discovery look, looks with it's all modern stuff and everything. It looks like, hey. I mean, admittedly, I'm glad that they didn't do it like this, but it also... I don't know, just back in the day before there was anything else, this felt like this was like one of the first, you know, spaceships that they had made in the, you know, in the time.
0: Yeah, because if they get a show today that was Star Trek that was set, you know, in the future, and they're walking around with clipboards and styrofoam cups and <laughs> and doing the stuff that you know, you kind of you know, give them let them have it in the original series because you know it was made in the 60s. Yeah. If you tried to do it today, you'd be like, we're, we're, wait, we have, I, I, it, you know, I got I got this thing right here. It says, wait, wait, I don't need a clipboard. Yeah. You know, I tap my stuff in. I go, yes, I approve. We have people Very true. who, you know, like order supplies for work on their phone. Yeah. There's no way that, like, some guy's walking around with a clipboard. It's just that when you watch it from the 60s and you know, you you go well, they couldn't have imagined all this stuff. Certainly not in the first, you know, or second series, you know, the season. Yeah. time they might have come up with some cooler stuff, which I think they they do over time. But doing Discovery that way would have been goofy.
1: No, yeah, it would have been crazy. Anyway, after that reveal that he is a robot, that takes us into the opening credits. I should also uh, mention, too, as we go on, that uh, I don't remember this episode at all. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, had this episode not have had Mud's name in it, I would have had no idea where this was going. You know, it would have been cool, a robot taking over the ship. That's kind of exciting. I guess we've already did it with Nomad here just recently, but it would have been neat for an android to be the one to do it.
0: Yeah, one of the problems with having Iron Mud the name is that there's no reveal
1: yeah but again you know back in the day they wanted to like let you know it's going to be somebody you recognize it's going to be cool
0: yeah I'm sure like, w- if we w- went back and like found the promotional you know the commercials you know it'd be like Don T. Carvel hey <laughs> yay he's back <laughs>
1: Captain's log, star date 4513.3. After having been taken over by an android, we are entering orbit around a planet which has never been charted. Ah! Who sent you? You should refer to me as Mud the First. I had 500 of them made up to
0: attend me. I love you. However, I hate you. What a shame, you're not real. We are programmed to function as human females. You are? This place is even better than Leningrad. Scotty.
1: Scotty's dead. He had too much happiness.
0: Uh, the fact is, I've taken over your whole ship. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> and then he cut to Shatner. On. turn Tune in this week on NBC.
1: So, uh, back at it. An android, says Kirk. The android lets us uh, be known that he could not be taken over physically, uh, which I guess is why it- he was so quick to knock people out. And uh, if you, they tried to use phasers on him, he would uh, destroy the Enterprise. We have four days until our current course. Kirk asks, who sent you? That's kind of weird.
0: Is So you get this four-day diversion of the Enterprise, right? Right. And in one sense, it's kind of like, well, they were so far away from everybody else. That like they're just on their own, whereas next generation kind of feels like you're right next door, you know, to the core federation. But I, you would wonder, wouldn't someone go, uh, Starbase Twelve to uh, to Enterprise? You have uh, deviated from you know your planned course record. Uh, have you found something interesting? Could you report? Uh, we've been taken over by androids well, that seems to be some very bad news. Were you going to tell us about this? Or, you know... <laughs> you never get these kind of like, where are you going? What are you doing?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Weren't you supposed to be going to, you know, track gas anomalies in the Omega system or something? Have we just wandered around aimlessly? No one's ever surprised when we deviate from our course.
1: Kirk asks, uh, who sent you? Obviously, we know his name, right? Because it's in, the, it's in the, the title of the episode. But Kirk doesn't know his name. And the android tells us uh, that he is not programmed to answer that. Hmm. Wonderful to hear that again. Then, like a good cell phone or PC, he goes to sleep. Kirk and Spock are called uh, call checkmate. They can't do anything, and they are stuck on this journey. I thought about this for a second. I was like, yeah, I guess they are kind of stuck. But it's funny that they weren't, like, making an effort to override it somehow, you know what I mean? Again, uh, Next Generation would have had at least two scenes of them trying to figure it out, even if they ended up not being able to, you know. Stardate 413.3. The four days are up. The droid then awakes, scaring the bejesus out of everybody on the bridge. (laughs) Oh, okay. He's awake. Four days later, he's just been standing there.
0: He's been playing happy birds, or angry birds, or... <laughs> angry birds, birds with himself. <laughs> yeah. That's right. He
1: got high Norm- Norman selects the away team. Kirk, Spock, Bones, Ohura, and so and Sulu. I almost said Solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if they do not comply, they will be stuck in orbit here forever. Gracious offer, says Kirk. But then Norman actually uses the word Please. They beam down. The droids them uh, mar- take them into a room and there's Mud sitting on a throne. Kirk tries to call the ship, but the lady android guarding Mud takes it into her hand and crushes it. Kirk and Mud now, I know, right? They're so strong. Kirk and Mud go toe to toe, but it seems that Mud has the upper hand and Kirk agrees to listen. Mud tells them the most likely that they are going to be here for the rest of their lives, so they might as well get used to it. Dun-dun-dun, commercial. Back at it. Mud calls himself uh, Harry Mudd the First, he says. You notice now that there are two ladies standing at his side, and that they are twins. And then they cut back to Kirk, and so is that girl. Looks exactly like the two standing by uh, Mud, and then Mud says that he's got five hundred of them made, and then he shows us six more. I have a fondness for this particular model, she says, or he says, not she says, he says. Kirk wants to know uh, how Mud got free of his charges and his prison sentence. He doesn't quite answer the question, but does tell him that uh, he was bringing modern techniques to outlying mining colonies uh, who could use them. Kirk asks if he paid the royalties from these patents. After a long roundabout answer, Spock says, no, he did not. (laughs) Knowledge, sir, says Mud. Knowledge, sir, should be free for all. Or for use by a con man, apparently, I wrote. Who caught you? Asked Kirk. Oh, some Denevians. Do you know what... And do you know what the penalty on Deneve is? And Spock rattles them off. It's basically like death by phaser, death by hanging, death by, like, trampling. I don't know. There was a lot of them. (laughs) Death by rhino. (laughs) Death by rhino. Impalement. (laughs) So, uh, basically, we find out that Mud broke out of jail. He stole a ship. That they fired on him and they damaged his spaceship. But luckily, he made it here. And it's funny how this interaction between Mudd goes. Because Mudd tells a much longer version of the story. And Kirk retells it in like two words. He broke out of jail. He stole a ship. They fired on him. It's really great. It is. So then Mudd makes it to this planet. And uh, he declares it Planet Mudd. Spock now asks, uh, well, why does he need the Enterprise? Mudd tells him... Mud tells us that the androids won't let him leave because they want to study humans. Humans. So Mud has brought them some. And now I get to leave while you, the crew, remain here on the planet and entertain them. And now uh, we see Stella, right? Like we saw from Discovery. Here is uh, Mud's uh, wife. Yeah, she's he there, like.
0: It's always a great reveal.
1: Exactly. Uh, she's in an Android version, and uh, he's got her around, so he can tell her to shut up whenever he wants to. She's nagging him the whole way, though, nagging him. I caught Benton, Where have you been? Have you been drinking again?
0: You've been eating too much.
1: Uh, The crew is then taken to this room with a bunch of, like, random benches and seats. The joys ask if they need anything. We can give you all that you ask. Kirk says, can I have my ship? Um, We are not programmed to respond in that area. Spoken like a true computer. We find that the androids were created by a humanoid race out of the Andromeda galaxy. But when their sun supernovaed, only a few outposts were left. And then these androids. But Mud gave them purpose. You must have a purpose, you know. Now Kirk asks, uh, uh, please, uh, will you leave us? Give us some space. Why should I leave you? She asks. Because we don't like you. Bup, 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 bup. <laughs> that just made me laugh. I was like, oh my gosh, that's actually a really funny moment from uh, Shatner there. Bup, 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 bup. <laughs> Kirk and the crew decide uh, that they are in a lot of trouble. But Spock says there must be some kind of central control, central, that, uh, that we can use to our advantage. And Spock finds it pretty quickly. But he also finds out that there are 207,000 other droids on the planet. That's a lot. And yet they only sent one to take over the Enterprise. Hmm. Anyway, Spock asks if uh, they were all controlled through this device. The, uh, the central uh, thing, uh, to which uh, Norman replies, we are not programmed to respond in this area. Quite understandable, says Nimoy, again, having so much fun. We find these androids are uh, have renewing flesh and that they can last somewhere over 500,000 years. It is even possible to add a human brain to one for eternal beauty and immortality. So they're pretty sure the human brain is compatible into this android series. I mean, they don't know a lot about humans, and yet they know that the brain would fit in fine. Back into the uh, bedroom or the quarters, the common room—I don't know what to call it. Spock is about to tell us about the deficiency the in Norman's room. the rec room. Right there, you go. Spock is about to tell us about the deficiency in Norman's programming when Mud and the doctor return. Bones tells them about a research lab that he could spend the rest of his life in. Woo-hoo! Oh, oh boy. Which basically, side note, makes me think that between this library, which must be full of uh, Andromedian Am- and Anyway, uh, classics, classic books from Andromeda uh and knowledge right it's probably (laughs) the andromeda strain of classics (laughs) they also have a lot of knowledge probably in those books that we don't have yet and also this research lab right which can do a lot of things that uh i really just hope that the uh federation scientists sent uh, uh or that the federation sent a bunch of scientists and historians back here when they leave that's right they must have there's probably a lot of knowledge there so uh kirk freaks out telling bones not to get too comfortable Suddenly, Scott, not voluntarily, is thrown into the rec room as well. Kirk says, "Uh, I ordered you to stay aboard. I was captain, but then this lady threw me into the transporter beam. Mud then reveals that he's uh, sending androids to cover the Enterprise to work as the crew, and that they have been beaming the rest of the crew down to the planet. Kirk then uh, chokes out Mud, saying that someone has to man the ship. They are, says Mud. They are quick to learn. I've taken over your ship, and there is nothing you can do about it. Commercial. Back at it. Spock reveals that they are uh, that the androids are totally loyal to Mud. They can provide anything we need. Anything we need. What will my crew do down here when they can get anything that their heart desires? Well, let's cut to Chekhov, sitting on Mud's throne, being waited on by two different Alices, and enjoying every bit of it. They tell him that they are programmed to act like a real woman in every way. This place is better than I taught, he says.
0: <laughs> we fi- fully functional.
1: Right, yes, exactly, like Data. Back in the common room, Kirk asks, uh, or Kirk says, uh, here we are in a gilded cage. Now, how do we get out? Chekhov and Uhura have already showed us examples of the crew craving to the whims of the androids. But Kirk won't have it. We don't belong here, he says. Then an Alice arrives. How can I serve you? Get us back to our ship, he says. I am not programmed to respond in that area. Can I get you anything else that would make you happy? Give us our ship. That would make us happy. I will deliver anything you want, anything for your pleasure. We are programmed to make you happy. we we'll get us back our ship. We are unhappy here. But she doesn't understand unhappy. So Spock explains to her, as only a Vulcan can. The Enterprise is not a want or need. It is a mechanical device. No, yells Kirk. It is a beautiful lady and we love her, he says. Illogical, illogical. Illogical, illogical. Unhappiness does not relate. We must study this, says Alice, and she leaves.
0: Much, much better than LOL, we get the pawn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right? Crazy bot. Kirk then asks Bones for a uh, psychological anal- analysis. He says, uh, there's no beating them or their sense of purpose. That's hard to beat out of anyone. Even humans. Kirk and Mud uh, meet up before Mud uh, is ready to leave. He takes one more berating from Zella and then tells her to shut up one last time. Mud then turns and asks Alex, number two, to take his bags to the ship, but she says no. Then Norman tells Mud that they can't let him go. Harry is flawed. Humans are all flawed, and they need our help. They are self-destructive. Kirk says, but we prefer to help ourselves. Mud flips out again, asking Alice number one to take his bags aboard. She refuses, throwing him to the floor. The droids now tell us that the humans will be held. Oops. That the humans will be handheld by them. Their destructive nature underneath our control. We will control you, and you will be happy. Skynet! And controlled, we go to commercials. So uh, go ahead. You can talk about it. I know you want to. This uh, common Trek trope of teaching us that humans don't like to be controlled or uh, or locked up, no matter how good the cage is.
0: That's right. Humans got to be free. What makes us human? Not That's right. only do we have to be free, but we have to face challenges. We can't just get our desires fulfilled by a bunch of robots handing us turkey dinners and <laughs> I don't know what else
1: to check I would want. Right, yeah. Whatever he was thing, drinking. Romulan ale or something.
0: But things
1: gotta go wrong. We gotta fix it. So back to it. Kirk uh, doesn't like the idea of androids controlling us or possibly running the entire galaxy. Dun dun dun. They must be stopped. Scott reminds us that the androids are not capable of creative thought. However, Spock points out that for all the uh, series of droids that uh, you know, there are many Alices and many Oscars and many uh, other ones, but there is only one Norman. Is he the central control? Is he the one holding sway over all 200,000 droids? They suspect Norman is the other central control. Kirk comes up with an idea and they knock out Mud. Then Alice comes in and says uh, that we need to get aboard the ship, that Mud needs medical supplies. Bones tells Alice that uh, Mud is dying, and that only a cure is uh, the only cure is back on board in sickbay. But then Uhura steps forward and foils their plan. At two, Uhura she tells Alice that it's all a trick. They just want to sabotage the ship. Kirk asks in front of Alice, "Why this betrayal?" Uhura says that she wants an android body. She wants immortality, which Alice is willing to grant her for helping them out but we find out that this was all part of a plan. They knew the androids would be suspecting them to try and overthrow them in some way. Kirk now sits on the throne and he calls the Alice's in. What do you wish for? They ask. I ask for your attention, says Kirk. Then Kirk claps and in walks the bridge crew. Scott and Bones pretend to play instruments while Chekhov and Uhura dance to a musicless playing, their musicless playing. Alice asks what they're doing, and Kirk says celebrating. What are they celebrating? They're celebrating their captivity. Are you enjoying the music? Quizzically, Alice asks, music? And then her necklace starts to beep, indicating her thinking. More confused, Alice's as Uhura strikes Chekhov. Oh, my goodness. Then Kirk tells Chekhov to stand up and stand still. And Chekhov jumps in place while the others clap along. Alice is then... He's dancing, yeah. Sure, Alice is,
0: dancing, just like an elf.
1: <laughs> oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. It's like a uh, very... Um, what do you call it? Uh,
0: Russian folk dancing.
1: Sure, Russian folk dancing. That's not the word I was looking for. But yes, exactly. Uh, Alice is fro- frozen in the logic of it all. I wonder how Spock's doing. Well, we cut to Spock and find him in the, in, in the lab. Spock proves his analytical mind to the androids, but then tries to Vulcan hand pinch one of the droids. It doesn't work. And they ask, what was that supposed to be? And then he turns to Alice, number 27, and says that he loves her, but then turns to Alice 210 and says, but I hate you. They ask what is happening. He says, I hate you because you are identical. And they get stuck in the illogic of those two statements. Fascinating, says Spock. Yeah, More fun from them.
0: LOL, I get the pawn. And they just go about their business.
1: Right. Here's another uh, interesting thing from a story writing uh, perception. I understand plotting from a structural standpoint, uh, but also I understand it intuitively. It tends to be how I write. I let the characters sort of guide where it goes, but I also know that at some point we have to get to somewhere, right? And so because of that, most of my best writing comes from uh, interpersonal relationships, right? It's about, you know, two people in a thing and stuck, you know, stuck in them dealing with each other. Uh, When it comes to me, uh, puzzles are not good. So uh, it's interesting that uh, the writers of sci-fi in general, but also of this show are very good about not only like the very good plotting of it, but also the very good dialogue of it. And then also when it comes to these kind of logical leaps that they're really good about writing those too. I'd probably need to call you at some point and be like, hey, I'm stuck. I need a puzzle. <laughs> For instance, in Labyrinth, right? That's a that's that's one that like my brain took my brain forever to like get right. I know the answer of I even knowing the answer of it, it still took me forever to understand, you know, like like how it worked, right? Which is the one in Labyrinth where there are the two guards at the door. There were two doors, and one was like certain death, and the other one was to like where you were going. And one, one of those guards would tell a lie, and the other one would uh, uh, tell the truth. But you could only ask one of them a question to figure it out. So uh, if you remember from Labyrinth, the answer is uh, she asks one of them what the other one would say was the door, was the, was the correct door. So then, I'm already getting lost. So, the so. So, asking one what the other would say means that if the other one was the liar, then that door was the wrong door. But if this one was the liar and the other one was the one telling the truth, then he would tell me the wrong door. So, it would still be the other door than the one that he mentioned. Aha, I did it. See, I reasoned it out. (laughs) But yeah, I'd never be able to come up with that on my own. That's all I'm saying. So, uh, Spock exits then, uh, having left them stuck in their illogic, and now they go after Norman. Kirk asks Norman to surrender. He says, we cannot. We are stronger, faster, and smarter than you. Kirk then asks, uh, can you harm a man you have been programmed to serve? Norman says, no. Then Mudd steps up to the council and says, but you have, my poor soulless being. Men do not live on bread alone, but by liberty. What is a man without liberty? Bones tells us suffering and burdened is the only way that we can be happy. Norman then asks for Spock to explain, and he does, by whispering in his ears, saying that logic is a little tweeting bird. Are your circuits working because your eyes are green? Then Scotty uh, fakes his heart breaking, tired of the happiness and of the pleasure. He asks for his death, so they form little pistols with their thumb and finger, and then they whistle the, the sound of a, of a phaser. <laughs> And Scotty falls down dead. Bones declares him dead. Kirk then grabs Scotty around and says he knew too much happiness. But now he is happier in his death. Which, too, is ultimately confusing. And then they all laugh at their poor friend. ha <laughs> But then Kirk silences them. What is a man? He monologues. And then they all applaud him. Norman continues to find it all illogical. Then, from under his shirt, Spock pulls out a ball of explosive. Well, that's what he says it is, but his hands are empty. He then readies to throw the ball to mud, but ma- telling him not to drop it. Spock then throws the imaginary bomb to mud, who bobbles it, oh, but safely catches it. He then places the imaginary bomb onto the floor, asking Bones for the fuse, then asking Bones for the detonator. And then, with a golf swing... Which, by the way, it's good to know that both baseball and golf have made it through the 24th century. Using his golf swing, the uh, imaginary bomb explodes and everyone is reeling. The Alice's go out and Norman is still confused. I lied, says (laughs) Mud. Kirk says, yes, remember, everything Harry does is a lie. Remember that. Now listen closely, Norman, says Mud. I I'm lying. And then the smoke starts to come out of Norman's ears. Only humans can explain, explain, explain. And he fries. Mud suggests entering into a partnership with Kirk, but Kirk says, nah, I got another idea. Later, we find that they have reprogrammed all the androids to go back to their basic function of trying to make the uh, planet hospitable. Bones jibes Spock about having found... uh, a logical and pragmatic society, but only to be brought down by humans. Now you're stuck with us, says Spock. Spock says, (laughs) and nowhere am I more needed. (laughs) Touché, says says Kirk. Mud then finds that he has been paroled, but his parole is that he is being left on the planet to help the androids as they continue rebuilding. Mud then, walking around, looking at all the alleys and Mazes, says, uh, well, perhaps this won't be too bad. But then Kirk has a special surprise for him. There is one droid they've repro- pre-programmed to fulfill his every need. And he, and uh, that uh, android will convince him to work with the other androids and not to exploit them. And it's Stella. But it's not just one Stella, it's two. Oh, but it's not just two Stellas, it's five! Dun, uh, have you been eating too much and then we get this nice too late <laughs> that's right three of them all yelling at one time at poor Harry uh Ben Corp mud uh, then we get this uh, final shot uh, in the remastered version of them uh scooting away from the planet with its ring around it I thought that was a really cool shot. Here was something that I thought that Kuhn also mentioned in his, uh, his making of this episode was that uh, we know from earlier circumstances that the crew uh, would never uh, disobey direct order from the captain without, uh, you know, testing it being actually the captain first, as we saw in the one episode where uh, Scott is like, I don't think that's him. At least one person would have to remain on the Enterprise to run the transporter, says Kuhn. Any order coming from the ground would have to specify that a skeleton crew be left on duty. So this is why, of course, they end up changing it to the way they do now. But then I guess when they reprogrammed the androids that the androids were the ones who beamed them back to the ship. I don't know. I'm confused. To the ratings! In the ratings, Gomer Pyle again won Friday night with its 49% of viewership. Well, golly! I know, right? In our next talk of the uh, 1960s uh, pop culture universe, we'll have to talk about Gomer Pyle. <laughs> but Trek was second in the ratings with 25% of the ratings. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Richard Carmel, who was uh, who played Mud, said that uh, he or found that he would act with William Shatner again, and then uh, would once more do the voice in uh, Mud's Passion, which was scripted by Candle and was aired in the Star Trek animated series. Carmel said, when I did the shows, I never thought any, thought it would evolve into all of this. I don't think that any of us thought it would in terms of immortality that it seems to have achieved. Now, here is my special bonus thing from earlier. Star Trek intended to do more mud episodes. Stephen Kendall said, I did a number of Harry mud stories that never got made. The first was called Deep Mud, which picked up exactly where I mud left off. The robot, the robot the robots had collected the remnants of a highly uh, advanced lost culture, and Mud found this suit of armor, which in effect uh, adapted its uh, flesh and blood inhabitant and gave him extraordinary military prowess. What Mud did was use the uh, suit to escape, and then the suit began modifying Mud into a kind of interstellar pirate. The question was whether Mud, the lighthearted con man would become truly mean Or would he be able to escape from the suit that made him superhuman powers but took his soul as payment? Dun, dun, dun. He had to con the suit, which was a computer-operated creature in its own right. Money issues and Gene Roddenberry's desire to stay clear of pirate stories kept this idea from further advancing. They told me that that, uh, in the third season that they were going to write another one in the fourth season, but there never was a fourth season. Wah, wah, wah. well I'd love to give you a budget uh ideas of what was going or a budget i'd love to give you me- yes I'd love to talk about the money that happened in this episode, but sadly we didn't get to it in this chapter. It never existed anywhere in the uh, reading of this chapter so who knows hopefully it came in on budget and they didn't lose any more money uh filming this episode they did however film over seven days so But they were scheduled seven days. So maybe it worked out okay. Maybe it came in on budget. Well, next week we get another very uh, well known episode. We get the Trouble with Tribbles. So that's exciting. That should be another fun episode to talk about. Uh, Anything we didn't get into uh, this week, Ken, that you want to talk about?
0: I think we pretty much hit it
1: all. I think so too. Excellent. Well, That's it. As always, find us on the Instagrams, find us on the YouTubes, find us on uh, SoundCloud, find us on the iTunes, find us wherever you might be looking. We're probably there, including Facebook. What fun.
0: We don't have any matchbook covers.
1: No matchbook covers. That's true. I'll look into it, see what I can find. Anyway, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin. And as always from planet Houston's my brother, Ken. Say goodbye, Ken.
0: Live long and prosper.
1: There you are. And we will see you all.